Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Uh, This is the uh, second sermon in our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. And last Sunday, we learned how the Creed is grounded in the Scriptures. And like the Scriptures, we learn who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is how the Apostles' Creed is organized. We also learned how the Creed acts as a summary a support structure to the scriptures in light of our variability in illumination. Some remember well, some forget well. And so we have the Apostles' Creed to help us to recall quickly the essentials, the keys of our belief in Christ. And we saw how the creedal summaries are used in scripture. We went to various places, to Deuteronomy, chapter 26, and the Feast of First Fruit. We also went to Paul's letter to Timothy, where he explained an early baptismal formula. And we also finished then with our own Savior, giving a summary of the entire scope of God's law in his summary of the commandment. Now, because of the great revival of the study of the Scriptures, in the original languages at the time of the Renaissance. It's in the Reformation that the Apostle Creed comes into its own for our own day. Because every Protestant denomination in Europe incorporated the Creed into their teaching ministry and adding it to morning and evening worship. So what a Christian believes when saying, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, must conform to Scripture fully. That the Eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ created out of nothing heaven and earth and everything in them and still upholds them by his eternal providence. The confession of God's sovereign creation is simple and straightforward. He created everything, and what he created is very good. Now that the believer has experienced rescue through the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she is able to go further to confess God's creation of all things, his providential upholding and ruling of his creation, and to understand that because God is their Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has naturally as the son, we gain by adoption as sons and daughters of God. Now, all that I've explained so far, these scriptural principles, particularly that God created the heavens and the earth and upholds them now by his providence, has been under attack for the last 200 years or so. Science and its study of the laws of nature has made to many 
the Creed's first article as something obsolete. God has been reduced, in other words, to what is called the God of the gaps. In other words, he's an explanation for those areas of science in which we have yet to solve the problem. It's the great unknown. So in that mystery, we use God. Leaving the believing Christian to risk being a laughingstock among their peers. Believing in God being something like believing in the tooth fairy or in Santa Claus. Now, what would be strange to a lost world today, I think, is to find out that 40% of scientists still believe in God. More strange. Why? The most abstract of sciences in the higher mathematics, particle physics, and cosmology have returned to discuss quite seriously that God is involved in the creation and sustaining of the universe. Now Peter writes this in his first letter. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So as we begin in this first article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I want to consider it first in light of what modern science is telling us in terms of this article of our faith. One God, creator. Now the historians of modern science will point out to us that science arose in the context of a Christian worldview, that it was nourished and sustained by that view. Now that should not surprise us because we know from our study of Genesis 1 through 11 that in Genesis 8, God promises this. While the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, the regularities that science describes are the regularities of God's own commitment and actions. The so-called natural laws are really the law of God or the word of God that has been now imperfectly or approximately described by human scientists. All scientists, including agnostics and atheists, believe in God. They have to in order to do their work because the work of science depends constantly on the fact that there are regularities in the universe, the regularities of God's own commitment and actions. They explain what is observed in terms of these various regularities and they call them the laws. They explain those laws in terms of more fundamental laws. That's why they say that chemical law follows from quantum mechanical law that governs electrons orbiting the nuclei of atoms. Or when they model the entire universe, they move down through the laws to the ultimate initial conditions at the beginning of time. And what have they discovered? 
They have discovered that the patterns of particles, either as constant in quantum mechanics or in the initial conditions of the universe, are suspiciously precise for life. Even when making extreme, the smallest to the factor of trillions of decimal points, of changes in the laws of nature, it creates a dramatic detrimental effect on the ability of the universe to support the complexity needed for physical life forms. No matter how they try it, to their surprise, scientists have discovered that at the deepest level, physics has reached the universe is well put together. And so the debate today is that God is a necessary being. In other words, the universe is entirely dependent upon God for its existence, moment by moment. But is that the case today? Well, no. Why is that? Because many people today have persuaded themselves that the laws of science are impersonal. In other words, the idea of an impersonal mechanical law has been substituted for the personal commitment and action of God. Now, what's going on here? Well, people are carrying out a form of substitution or exchange that the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, that they have exchanged the true God for an impersonal substitute, an abstract idea of law as mechanism. Verse 25 of Romans 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, a lie in verse 25 does not mean that they're consciously trying to persuade someone else to believe something they know not to be true, but that they themselves believe something that is untrue. They believe the substitute they have put in place is worthier of their allegiance. But this mistaken belief is not innocent. They have suppressed the truth, the Apostle Paul tells us. They have, as it were, lied to themselves long enough that they have persuaded themselves that their lie is actually true. But God is the God of truth. Truth is what God knows. Therefore, truth is personal, rooted in the person of God. When we make a mistake about God, we also generate a mistake about the meaning of any truth whatsoever. Now, that doesn't mean that you lose sight of all truth. It still remains true that 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know that to be true. But what do you know about it? How do you conceive this truth? Well, in our world today, there are two choices. The truth is an abstract, impersonal fact that is just there, like the universe. Or the truth is in the mind of God that he has given you to know out of his goodness. 
and thereby created a fuller, richer harmony between the infinite beauty of his mind, the beauty of the universe he's created, and the rest that you have in knowing the truth. We corrupt our knowledge of God, we corrupt our knowledge of every other truth. This corruption could be subtle, it can be extensive. To protect a lie, we know this, don't we? We add many more. So the laws of nature simply are the way God has freely chosen to run the universe. They're not impersonal laws over and above God. We know God is involved in those fine-tuned areas involving regular and predictable events, repeating patterns in precise and beautiful mathematical descriptions. The deeper the scientists have gone, the more their mathematics demonstrate the fact that there is a God, an essential being, the God who sustains the universe. But for the believer, the second point of the first article is that he is the father, the father. Now it's important to remember that the scriptures regularly underline the reason believers call God my Father. It's because of the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son. That's what one would call the Christological key to understanding the first article. After the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, knowing who God is as creator and sustainer of the universe is part of a Christian confession, not one of natural reason alone. If it is not that, then it is not a confession of the one true God. This is what our Savior taught. This is what he said. No one knows the Father except the Son, and this point, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's why he told the unbelieving Jews around him, you do not know my Father. He also said, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now, we may have means by God's common grace of some knowledge of God in creation. We've been talking about that. But we have seen in our examination of science, it is an imperfect knowledge. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 that we need the Spirit. Without the Spirit, it does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, the natural man or woman. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the person without the Spirit, i.e. the one who is not a, in union with Christ by that Spirit, cannot understand that God is their Father. It's impossible to construct any theology by natural means. And the Reformers, our forebearers, understood this when they rehearsed the first article of the Apostles' Creed. They understood that the entire scripture in which this article is found is redemptive. The redemptive revelation of God as creator and redeemer. You cannot separate the two. Redemption is God's great work of reclaiming 
and renewing the creation through Jesus Christ. This great redemptive undertaking will reach its fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the biblical account of creation that we have studied in Genesis 1 through 11 is an integral part of God's redemptive revelation to us. Its purpose is is to redirect us redemptively to our roots in God's good creation. We still have a responsibility to creation. We are its stewards. The commands to Adam and our first parents are not abrogated by our disobedience, but rather it becomes part and parcel of the great redemptive work of God in Christ. All that we do in maintaining and preserving and protecting God's creation is for his glory. So this trust and assurance that we gain out of sheer grace alone, earned for us by Christ, that I have had my sins forgiven, that I might be forever right with God, and have salvation granted as a gift is part of this general redemption of all things. This is what Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe is formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Therefore, all of creation has a dignity, not in it of itself because it's just there, but because it points and brings glory to God who sustains it. Originally, we know God was the father of the whole human race, the creator of every man and woman. But sin has alienated sinners from their creator, making them rebels, prodigal sons and daughters. And today, liberal Christianity will deny the fact that one must be in Christ to be a son or daughter. Rather, they'll see the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man being of all people. But the creed affirms the opposite of this. We are adopted by grace through Christ. That's why Christ teaches his followers to pray how? Our Father in heaven, our Father. Christ was to nurture in us that childlike awe and trust that God through Christ has become our Father. It also reveals to us in the scriptures how the Holy Spirit has given us that desire to address God as Father, Abba. Therefore, to believe in God, the Father Almighty, is to be totally persuaded that he will make all things attributed to him subservient to your salvation, gathered all together and renewed you and creation at the second coming of the Son. True faith is not only knowledge and conviction, but this great assurance. The believer's trust is never blind but rooted in the knowledge and conviction that God is the almighty creator and powerful sustainer of the whole universe. And that's why God is able 
to care for us. He is the almighty God. And he desires to do all of this because he is our faithful father. The one who becomes the believer's father because of Christ his son. Trust in the Father's providence is what marks the difference between the adopted child of God and the rest of the world. That's why our Lord gave this teaching to his disciples that we heard this evening. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Consider the ravens of the sky. In God's almighty and ever-present power, He providentially upholds, sustains, and preserves his entire creation. He so rules them that all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And that brings us great comfort, don't you think? That there are personal fruits of God's providence for the believer who confesses the first article of the Apostles' Creed. Patience in trial, thankfulness in prosperity, and hope. For the future. The first is patience in trial. Providence contributes to the fruit of patience because the believer knows that it is by the will and counsel of God, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that wills that whatever comes to pass is for your good in your life. All things are profitable for us because of God's fatherly counsel towards you. A believer trusts him so much that he does not doubt that he will turn to your good whatever adversity has been sent in your life in this sad world. And there are tons of biblical examples, aren't there? You can revisit the life of Joseph or Job and David. If Joseph had stopped to dwell on his brother's treachery, he would never have been able to show them brotherly regard when they saw him again. But because he turned his thoughts to the Lord, forgetting the injustice committed against him, he was prepared to be kind and gentle, even to the point of comforting his brothers in their fear that he would now seek revenge after the death of their father Jacob. Or if Job had kept focusing on the Chaldeans that had destroyed all of his livelihood, he would have sought revenge. But because he recognized it was the work of the Lord, He comforts himself with that comforting thought. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And when David, fleeing Absalom, was attacked by threats and rocks by Shimei, if he had focused on the man, his followers would have killed him on the spot. But he knows that Shimei did not act alone, but through the Lord's prompting. So, my dear friends, when we're unjustly accused by others, overlook their wickedness, which will increase our pain and distress and focus on revenge. Do not do these things, but instead look to God. The next, thankfulness and prosperity. Well, it seems much easier to be thankful when things go well than to be patient when things go against us. But every parent knows this, don't we? how hard it is to teach children to show thanks. And in our relation to God, we all remain children, no matter what our age is. 
How often, when things go well, do we easily forget to be thankful? Yet again, in the scriptures are many examples of this. Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord, he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Thankfulness and prosperity. And third, hope for the future. The believer knows that we can have good confidence for the future in our God and Father, that nothing will separate us from his love. This is the great truth of Romans chapter 8, isn't it? This is because the entire creed speaks of God's love displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the course of our salvation from sin and death. There is an assurance in the Apostles' Creed for the future here that God, by his providence, who has delivered you so far, he will also make a future deliverance, serving your salvation. He will never desert you so that you are utterly destroyed. Confidence in the Lord, of course, does not mean that all problems are solved or that trials can be explained. The question why is not answered. So we must avoid trying to give answers to friends who may indeed be in a severe trial, except to respond as Job's comforters did at the beginning, in silence and tear and lament and in prayer. Remember what happened then. Flawed theology of those companions led to mistaken explanations that can turn a well-meaning friend into a miserable comforter. Do not become the devil's own tool to add to someone's pain, to add to their uncertainty, to question and anger in friends who are struggling in severe trial. Rather, turn instead to that great hope that is found in the creed itself, in the great summary of the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in that that the love of God is displayed. As the old hymn says, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.